So last week, Alyssa took us through a really important passage in Habakkuk describing that those who live by faith will be declared righteous. And that's an important uh, concept for not only the book of Habakkuk, but also the entire Bible. And in today's section, we're going to learn what happens to those who do not live by faith. There are grave consequences for those who choose to reject God, putting their faith and confidence in themselves rather than in God. And so the passage that we're looking at today talks about God's judgment for sin. So I think every group, I think, read it already, so I'm not going to read it out um, just to save time since we already did that in our groups. Uh, But I think you could, as you read it, you probably, you know, were confused by some of it. And it is a heavy passage that I was so glad I was given to teach today. (laughs) Um, But it It turns out that it really, for me, pointed to the cross of Christ and the need that we all have for that. So it was actually encouraging for me. Um, So I did make a very brief outline for myself mostly, but um, uh, first I'll talk about God is judge, and then I'll go into the four woes, and then I am judge, and then Christ, our substitute. So just to give a little bit of structure as I'm talking. So God is judge. So surprisingly to me, the Bible actually has more references to the fury, anger, and wrath of God than to his love and tenderness, which I read in Knowing God. It's much easier to talk about God's love, mercy, and grace, and the topic of judgment can be avoided in some circles because it makes us uncomfortable. And there are some who say, I don't want a wrathful God. I want a loving God. But when we think about it, If we want a loving God, he must be wrathful. He must get angry. God's love and righteous anger must coexist. When you truly love someone, it angers you if you see them being hurt or abused or if you see them destroying their lives. If we aren't angered at a loved one being abused, that means that we are apathetic and we don't care because we're maybe too absorbed in ourselves or too hardened. If God is loving and good, he must get angry at evil angry enough to bring judgment. God loves his people, and sin has infected all of his creation. So God's love cannot be fully understood without understanding his hatred of sin. And when we look through scripture, we can see that one of the names for God is judge. We see God acting as judge as early as Genesis 3, when Adam and Eve had to leave the Garden of Eden. There had to be judgment for for their disobedience to God's law. The flood the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah, the plagues against the Egyptians, and many, many more examples of God as judge are found throughout scripture. And this isn't just an Old Testament concept. When we move to the New Testament, it's actually intensified as we hear about a coming day of judgment when each one of us will have to stand before God and be held accountable. 2 Corinthians 5.10 says, We must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ so that each one may receive what is due for what he has done in the body, whether good or evil. Because God is holy and pure, there must be a punishment for sin. And we know that from Romans 6.23, for the wages of sin is death. Uh, So far in our study of Habakkuk, we have learned about the Babylonians or the Chaldeans, and what an evil nation they were. And that's kind of what we were talking a little bit about in our discussion already. They had no regard for the welfare of others. They were stealing, plundering, killing, and exploiting human beings as property for their own gain. And when we look at the history of the Babylonians, we can see how they've always been concerned 
about their own glory. The Babylonians originated at the city of Babel, and you all know the story of the Tower of Babel, the people who were building their own tower in their might and strength to make their names great. And then we remember King Nebuchadnezzar, the Babylonian king, and he epitomizes someone who seeks his own glory. He created a statue of himself 90 feet high and commanded everyone to worship it. And it, uh, he's quoted in Daniel 4.30 saying, Is not this great Babylon, which I have built by my mighty power as a royal residence for the glory of my majesty? And also in the passage we read this morning in Isaiah, I think it was the first question, depicting that same desire to ascend above God. So throughout the Bible, we can see that Babylon doesn't just refer to a physical place, but it represents the culture of all those who put themselves in the place of God. They are those who are proud, God-hating, self-loving, self-glorifying, and self-confident. And God warns that those who seek their own glory and reject God will bring judgment upon themselves. So this passage is a prophecy of the coming judgment of the Babylonians for their blatant rejection of God. So now we'll move into the four woes. So God declares five to the Babylonians, and we're going to look at four today and one next week. So in our study guide, she describes woes. Woe oracles usually contain a declaration of the sin committed and a pronouncement of coming judgment as a result. Uh, Through these woe oracles, God is assuring his people that judgment is impending for the Babylonians. God is saying that they will reap what they have sown. God is mercifully showing Habakkuk how the story will end for the Babylonians, giving the Israelites hope and encouraging them to remain loyal despite their present difficulties. And what God said would happen did happen. We can read in history that in 539 BC, the Persians conquered the Babylonians, fulfilling the prophecies that we read about in the Bible. Something to note about this section of God declaring woes is the tone by which we understand what God is saying. One of the commentaries pointed out that God does not gloat over the destruction of the wicked. This passage should be understood through the lens of sadness and lamentation, a brokenness over the sin of the Babylonians and what must come as a result. God mourns the brokenness of both the victim and the perpetrator. 2 Peter 3.9 says that the Lord is patient not wanting any to perish, and desires for everyone to come to repentance. So our first woe, which is verses 6 to 8, we can see that greed is pervasive among the Babylonian nation. They are taking what is not their own. They are plundering other nations, taking land, possessions, and people to use for their own gain. One commentator described it as an addiction, addiction to winning, to having more and more for themselves. Those who are proud and seeking their own glory are restless, constantly wanting more for themselves, never content with what they have. God is assuring Habakkuk that he will hold the Babylonians accountable, and what they take will eventually be taken back from them. There will be payback. And this doesn't sound unfamiliar to the world we live in today. We see the rich get richer, the poor being exploited, blood being shed in war, And we await the just and perfect judge to come and bring forth justice. What God said to Habakkuk remains true for us today. In our second woe, verses 9 to 11, 
the Babylonians will be punished for relying on themselves for protection. They are building their nest on high for self-preservation. So think of a large eagle's nest, built far away from danger, unreachable by their enemies. They are trusting in themselves for their own safety and protection. But God says that shame will come to their house. They may have physical security now, but it will not last. And in our third woe, we can see that the Babylonians have been toiling and working away to build a strong city with defensive walls, but God declares that their labor is in vain. In Psalm 127, verse 1, God also says uh, a similar thing. Unless the Lord builds the house, those who build it labor in vain. Unless the Lord watches over the city, the watchman stays awake in vain. The Babylonians can build the most defensive walls and have the strongest armies, but it will all amount to nothing in the end. It is all in vain. And then we have a really beautiful verse tucked into the end of this woe oracle, verse 14, which says, For the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. The earth will be filled. There is no room for any other glory than the Lord's. All those who seek their own glory and kingdom on this earth will see it destroyed. This verse, among all these woes, is like a beacon of light. It reminds us that God's kingdom will prevail. Evil will not have the final say. This passage prophesies the destruction of Babylon, and we await the final overthrow of all the evil that Babylon represents. Babylon represents all evil and immorality that is so rampant in our world. And in Revelation 18.2, which was one of the passages in our homework, uh, it prophesies that Babylon the Great will fall. So this verse brings comfort to all those longing for justice in an evil world. It points us to our future hope and our eternal home, where evil will be destroyed once and for all, and every wrong will be made right. And the fourth woe talks about the Babylonians and their glory, which is going to be brought to shame. So this was one of the parts I had to kind of look in different commentaries, and there was a bit of discrepancy on to what it was referring to. Some said it was literal, some said it was figurative in terms of the drunkenness. But it is likely that the Babylonians were forcing their captives to become drunk so they could humiliate them. Um, but whether it's literal or figurative, I think what we can be certain about is that the Babylonians were taking pleasure in bringing shame to their captives. They were humiliating them, disgracing them, and dishonoring them. And they were delighting in that. So I think we can just see the evil of that. And God is declaring that the shame that they've brought upon others will be brought upon themselves and will come upon their own glory. So the tables will be turned on them. God is saying, you have made others drink, now you will drink the cup of my wrath. So the next section I'm going to talk about is I am judge. So um, in Psalm 9, 7 to 8, if you want, you can turn or I'll read it out for you. Psalm 9, 7 to 8, it says, But the Lord sits enthroned forever. He has established his throne for justice, and he judges the world with righteousness. He judges the people with uprightness. So we can see that God is the good and perfect judge. And this might make us question, where do we try to be the judge in our lives? Do you have to be right in every disagreement and argument? I was just talking the other day with some friends about arguments in marriage and how they often start with the smallest things like how to do dishes. And we have to be right about it. 
we have the right way and we have to win the argument. Um, and there's many more examples like that. And in our marriages or our friendships, are we scorekeepers? Are we mentally keeping track of who does more, who's investing more into the relationship? Do we hold ourselves over others thinking, I'm pulling my weight, if only they would do the same? Are you quick to judge the lifestyle of others, looking down on them? You might be silently judging others thinking, I would never make those choices as a parent or I don't know why she would do that with her life. Or maybe you've experienced deep hurt and pain in the past and you haven't received the reconciliation or the apology that you deserve. Are you able to entrust justice to God, the one who sees your pain and judges justly? Or do you hold on to your pain, letting it fuel bitterness and an unforgiving spirit? Do you look to your own means for justice? Maybe it's giving the cold shoulder or shutting someone out of your life or keeping a record of wrongs and bringing it up whenever you need leverage. So let us examine our hearts and ask God to reveal the areas where we're trusting in ourselves to be the judge. When we feel the need to dole out justice, deep down we're not trusting that God is judge. When we look to God as the judge of others' hearts, it allows us to be gracious knowing that we also need the same mercy. This doesn't mean that we turn a blind eye to evil and injustice, absolutely not. It does mean that we can take comfort in the fact that God is the true and righteous judge. And a verse that I often go back to for myself is 1 Peter 2.23, uh, which describes Jesus as he is suffering during the crucifixion. He continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. And in our pain and trials, do we do the same? So as we go through this list of woes, we can see that the Babylonians are a proud nation who are trusting in their own strength and resources and rejecting the power and authority of God. So we might read this list and think, well, I'm doing pretty well. I'm not murdering anyone. I'm not exploiting anyone. Um, and kind of look at it more of an out there problem. Um, but Jesus addresses this very thought in the Sermon on the Mount. In Matthew 5, 21, um, he says, if you want, you can turn to it, but I'll read it out. You have heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not murder, and whoever murders will be liable to judgment. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council. And whoever says you fool will be liable to the hell of fire. And then later in Matthew chapter 12, 36 to 37 Jesus says, men will have to give account on the day of judgment for every careless word they have spoken. For by your words, you will be acquitted and by your words, you will be condemned. So our words reveal what is on the inside for out of the overflow of the heart, the mouth speaks. So we can see that Jesus is getting at something much deeper than our outward actions. It's our heart motivation that underlies the actions that God is concerned with. And just the other day when I was talking to my son about Jesus dying on the cross for our sins, he said, what if one person did one tiny, tiny, little, small thing? Would Jesus still have had to die for that? And yes, it's all about our hearts. No amount of good works or outward righteousness can erase what sin has done to our hearts. And I think sometimes we might have that same line of thinking as he did. So now we move to Christ, our substitute. So the woes we learn about in Habakkuk remind us that God promises his wrath will be poured out on evil. 
And this is comforting when we think about all the evil around us that we know will come to an end one day. But what about us? We are all born into sin and deserve the very same fate as the Babylonians. Which one of us can say that we haven't gotten angry at someone or used a careless word or demeaned someone with our words? But God, rich in mercy, provided a way for us to escape the punishment we deserve. Jesus Christ on the cross is our substitute. And as we read these woes and the description of these evil Babylonians, we come to see that the life of Christ embodies the exact opposite actions that are being condemned in the woe oracles. So we can see that the Babylonians sought their own glory, trusting their own power and strength. And Jesus sought the glory of his father, trusting in his provision and submitting to his will. The Babylonians greedily heaped up what was not their own, stealing and plundering from others, while Christ lived a life of sacrifice and submission, taking nothing for himself and giving rest to all who seek him. The Babylonians are accused of shedding the blood of others, while Christ shed his own blood on behalf of others. The Babylonians set their nest on high to be safe from the reach of harm. The Son of God came down from heaven, leaving safety and security, and choosing a life of danger and suffering. The Babylonians put themselves in the place of God, while Jesus left his place with God and humbled himself, becoming a man. The Babylonians brought shame upon others in how they treated them, while Christ took all the shame of sin upon himself, and he drank the cup of God's wrath that sinners deserve. Christ lived the perfect life, he is the spotless lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world. And God's hatred of sin sent Jesus to the cross to suffer, suffer incredible agony and die in order to pay the penalty of sin for all who trust him. So this passage reminds us that there is payment required for each and every sin that has been committed. And it reminds me that it's not an, sin is an, an out there problem. It's an in here problem. And it should cause us all to mourn our sin and to run to Christ as our savior. Because of his mercy, he made a way for sinful people to be reconciled to him. Romans 5.9 says, We have now been justified by his blood. Much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. So we can trust that Jesus paid in full the price for the judgment that we deserved. We deserve death, yet Christ died in our place. And we can have confidence and assurance that on judgment day, those who have put their trust in Christ will be declared righteous instead of condemned. So I just wanted to close with a quote I read from the book Knowing God that really is encouraging and also convicting for those who maybe haven't put their trust in, in the Lord. It goes like this. As judge, he is the law. As savior, he is the gospel. Run from him now and you will meet him as judge then. Seek him now and you will find him and we'll look forward to meeting him on judgment day knowing that you will be declared righteous in Christ. Seek him now and you will find him and we'll look forward to meeting him on judgment day, knowing that you will be declared righteous in Christ. So I'm just going to pray now. Lord, we thank you that you have made a way for us to be declared righteous instead of condemned. Because of your mercy, we don't have to fear the judgment of God. Help us in all of our circumstances to entrust our lives to the one who judges justly. Amen. Amen.